you forget when you're at church every Sunday morning that this is the time where people like to mow their yards, right? So um, I think maybe he ran out of gas, so that's good news for us. If you're at home, there's a guy across the street mowing his yard, or at least he was earlier. So let's, this week, um, last week, we actually learned about Jesus talking about the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus tells us that's the greatest commandment. And that seems simple enough on the surface, but like in your day-to-day life, how do you do that? How do you choose what is the greater thing to do, right? Because there's always degrees, right? How do I actually show that I love God in all things or fully? Are there certain things that I need to do or certain threshold that I need to reach? How do I determine what is greater? And that's what we're looking at this morning, the concept of being greater. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. Um, We'll be finishing chapter 12 this morning. And so we're going to look at verses 38 through 44, um, if you would like to turn there with us. Um, And so let me read that for you. It says, He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. And sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. And summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. We're actually going to start in verse 35, but I wanted to start at the top of the page, so I started in the middle of our passage this morning. So verse 35 says this. It says, While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. So first we're going to talk about Jesus as the greater son. And we see this this exchange between Jesus and the scribes. And so in these last few weeks, we've seen... Uh, the religious leaders asking Jesus kind of difficult, challenging, and even ridiculous questions um, to try to trap him, to try to trick him, to get him into trouble. And so this week what we're seeing is Jesus is actually turning the tables on them, and he is asking them a question, right? A hard question um, that's difficult to answer. And the question is, right, you say as the religious leaders that the Messiah is the son of David, but in what way is he David's son? Because he throws in this quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And just for fun, um, this is a fun trivia fact. Uh, Psalm 110.1 is actually the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Um, so if you want to write that down and save it for trivia night, you'll be, have that one ready to go. Um, but he does that, and so he's saying David called him Lord. So how can he be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? It doesn't seem like those two would go together. Um, so, and we kind of understand this concept, right? We might say good things about our children, right? They're smarter than me or they're better at me at this certain skill or activity. But I don't think we would ever say um, that our kids are in authority over us or that our kids are running the house. 
Um, at least not in a good way. Usually when you say the kids are running the house, it's not a good sign, right? Something has gone wrong. Kids are celebrating in the back. Yeah. Maybe, maybe once a week we can let you go. Anyway, sorry. So the religious leaders would have taken David as an authoritative source. So Jesus uses that to kind of get them to see what he's talking about. But if you notice, Jesus actually gives it more authority than that. Right? He told them, David says this by the Holy Spirit. Right? This isn't just an idea that David had. It was given to David by the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus talking about the inspiration of Scripture in the Old Testament through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit gave David the words to say and the words to write in Scripture. It wasn't an idea that David had on his own, but something that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. And so we have this um, apparent contradiction between these two things, right? It would have been tough for the scribes to reconcile these two things together. But this isn't the only thing about Jesus that brings tension into who we think of as Jesus and to um, reconcile an apparent contradiction. And so we see other things in Jesus that sometimes we can think can be opposed to each other, right? Jesus is sometimes called the friend of sinners, right? but he's also called the righteous judge. And so as the friend of sinners, he loves and he welcomes all sinners to trust in him. Any and all sinners can find salvation through him. It doesn't matter if you've committed one sin or you've committed a million sins. It doesn't matter the seriousness of your sin. He loves and he cares for and he desires a relationship with all sinners. But he's also the righteous judge. He doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. All sinners receive the just punishment for their sin. And he doesn't just let things go. He is the fair, unbiased judge who rightly punishes those in rebellion against God. We also see Jesus be compassionate and firm. We've seen throughout the book of Mark how Jesus responds to the crowds with compassion. And he says again and again, they were like sheep without a shepherd, meaning they need a leader. They need somebody to care for them. They need somebody to help them. And so we see him respond with compassion to those who are seeking him, to those who want to be healed, to those who want to follow him. He responds with compassion. But we also see him be firm, right? We see this mostly with the religious leaders. He challenges them. He points out their hypocrisy. He warns them, so much so they're actively trying to kill him. Right? And we have other ones. He's the God of love and the God of wrath. He's the King of kings and he's the holy servant. So I think sometimes we just want it to be easy, right? We want it to be simple to understand. But following Jesus and understanding who Jesus is can't just be reduced to simple characteristics. He isn't just this one-sided person. He's a full expression of who God is. And there's tension in that, right? If he was easy to understand... If we could reduce him to characteristics that all aligned and made sense, um, I'm not sure he would be who we would want to follow. Right? We want somebody full. We want somebody powerful. We want somebody who is greater than us. And that's what we're looking at next is how great Jesus is greater, how the Messiah is the son of David and his Lord. Because Jesus is basically saying, I'm the Messiah, and so this applies to me. So let's take a look really quick at what each side means. First, you have the son of David, right? The Messiah as the son of David. So the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be similar to David. And so it makes sense that if he's a Davidic king, he will be like David and do what David did. 
Um, David is known for kind of conquering and expanding the empire and bringing peace. And so for them in this moment, it meant they expected the Messiah to be an earthly king and conqueror. They wanted to come, him to come as a military ruler and overthrow the Roman rule and oppression and to restore Israel as a nation um, and the Davidic kingdom. And so this view, I think, somewhat comes from a human perspective, right? It's centered on what they would really want in the Messiah. We want our nation back. We want control over what's happening. We don't want somebody else telling us what to do. We want our freedom. But this view was too small, is what Jesus is trying to get them to see, that the view of the real Messiah was greater than this. It's the Messiah as Lord, right? And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to understand, that the Messiah is Lord. He wasn't just the son of David. He was the son of God. He is the sovereign ruler of all things, not just Israel, not just over a few lands and a few people, but over all things. He doesn't overthrow political or military oppression, but spiritual oppression. He doesn't just establish one nation on earth with clear borders, but he establishes a global spiritual kingdom that transcends all things. And he does this, if you see, he does this from God's right hand in the position of authority and honor at the right hand of God. And so he's trying to get them to see that their view of the Messiah is too small. Right? They needed to understand the fullness of what the Messiah has come to do, which is what I think we should remember to do as well. Because the Son is greater than we think. And no matter what you think of Jesus, right, he is greater than that. If you just believe that Jesus was a great teacher, right, he has some good principles, right, love your neighbor, that's good stuff. That's a good principle to live by, right? But he's greater than that. He doesn't just teach us good life principles and give us an example to live by. Right? He teaches us the way to salvation, he teaches the way to become who you truly are. If you think Jesus is a prophet and a religious leader, you may say, well, I can put him in with all of the other religious leaders, with Muhammad, with Buddha, people like Gandhi, people like the Dalai Lama. Right? He is someone I can gain wisdom and insight from. His words and his book can give me wisdom and help and comfort in certain, in certain situations, but so can the other prophets. Right, but he is greater than that. He is the greatest prophet, the only one who speaks the truth because he is the source of truth. He's the only one who is alive. All the others are dead and gone, but he is living and interacting with people on a daily basis. And even if you think he's the Savior, right, that he is the Son of God who came to earth, and he died in your place for your sins, that he was fully man and that he was fully divine, and that you should owe everything to him as your Savior and your Redeemer. He's even greater than that. Right? Greater than we can imagine. Greater than we can understand. And you might say, well, it doesn't seem to get much greater than that, right? Being saved from my sins, getting into heaven for all eternity. That sounds pretty great that he would do that for me. But the depth of who he is, the depth of his love, the depth of his grace, the depth of our salvation is greater than we can imagine. The good news is, as believers, we believe that we have all of eternity to understand the depth 
the infinite depth of who Jesus is. So no matter what you think of Jesus, no matter who you think he is or what he may have done for you, he is greater than that. Greater than that. He is always greater. And then we see in the second half in verses 38 through 44 that he compares these two groups, the scribes and the widow. So he gives this, he's contrasting these two groups to give us clarity on what it looks like to be a disciple. Right, if you remember last week, right, he talked about the greatest commandment was to love God and love people. And so these two examples are going to give us clear examples of what, how not to do that and then how to do that. And he's going to make it really clear, again, that he's calling out the religious leaders. And so first we have the scribes. Um, they are definitely not loving God with all that they are, at least not intentionally, and they're not loving their neighbor very well. Right? It talks about them wearing long robes. Um, these are um, long white robes, actually, with fringe on them. Um, I'm thinking about getting one of those to preach in on Sunday. I think that would be a long white, white robe with fringe. Um, no, but the reason they wore that is because everybody else was wearing colors, and so they would stand out. Right? In their day, there wasn't like bleach in a washing machine that you could throw your white robe in and keep it clean every week. So having something white was probably not a good idea back then. But they did this so that everybody would know who they were, who everybody could see them coming from a long way off. And then it talks about them being greeted in the marketplace. There were actually rules for greetings um, for when they came through. So if a scribe was to walk through right now, um, we would all have to stand up because we knew that they were walking through. And so you do certain things. Only people who are actively working didn't have to follow these rules. And so they're looking for right, honor and recognition. They're looking for preferential treatments. We want the best seats in the house. We want to be at the front of the line. We want everybody to greet us. Um, they're looking for respect and honor. And then it gets to this one in the middle where it kind of says they're stealing from widows, right? Which seems weird to just kind of throw that in there. Um, but the scribes, um, similar, I guess, to what I'm, my job as well is they relied on money from other people. And so sometimes what they did in this process is they took advantage of the vulnerable and the less fortunate. And so they would prey on widows to get money from them. It made me think of like preachers that I see on TV um, who have a private jet, but they're asking other people to give them money. Like if you have a private jet, I think that's probably enough. Um, but I sort of, um, anyway, enough about that. So that's sort of what they're talking about. And referencing widows here very clearly connects this to the widow that we're going to see in the second half. And it talks about them praying to be seen, praying for show, having long, elaborate, wordy prayers Right? Using prayer, which is for us a gift from God to be able to communicate with him, to be able to communicate with the creator of the universe, to gain approval for men instead of listening and talking to God. And then he throws in another greater, right? These scribes will receive a greater judgment, right? It's going to come for them. And then we have the widow, and so what's happening at this point, Jesus and the disciples are watching people come through the temple and they're giving their offerings. They're basically, there's 13 boxes, receptacles to give your off, offering in. And so they see the wealthy people coming through, giving a lot. And then they see this widow come through and she puts two coins in the box. And after seeing this widow put in two coins, Jesus calls over his disciples. Right, and he says, truly I tell you, 
And if you remember from earlier, whenever Jesus says, truly I tell you, he's about to reveal something important to being a disciple. He tells them the widow's offering of two coins was greater than what the wealthy people were putting in, even though the amount was more. Right? Because even though they had given more, it didn't hurt them, it didn't affect them. They could give a lot and their day-to-day lives weren't affected. But she gave all that she had. Right? She had two coins and she could have given one and kept one to live on, but she gave both. So her gift was a sacrifice that expressed her love for God and her trust in God to sustain her. Jesus is giving a clear example in contrast to the scribes who we would expect to be the example of holy living, of what it looks like to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor. Right? She loved God and her neighbor so much that she gave everything she had so that God could use that for his glory and to serve others. And we would probably say, if we saw her, she was pretty foolish for giving all that she had. Right? Don't you know how to money, manage your money? Right? You don't just give everything you have and then hope you're going to make it. Right? You should have kept one coin. Don't you know you need to keep something to provide for yourself? But she knew right, what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. That giving everything to God was better than trying to take care of it on her own. She understood the greatness of God. That even if she had nothing, God would provide. God would sustain. There was no need to worry. There was no need to doubt. She gave all that she had, all that she had to live on. And Jesus was using her as an example to teach us that giving all your life to Christ is the call of discipleship. Right? To put Jesus at the center of our lives and give him total trust and total commitment. So in this example, the greater gift is giving the two coins because that's all that she had. So the greater gift for us is giving our all to Jesus, to following him, not giving part, right? The parts we want to give or the time that we want to give or the money that we want to give or the mo- what's easy to do, right? He wants us to give our all. And that's what Jesus is trying to get everybody to understand. To be his disciple is a call to follow him, to give all to him, to, give, to trust him completely and not hold anything back. And we give to him because he is greater. Right? He is greater. Greater than we think, greater than we can imagine. He's the greater son. And so we can trust in giving all to him. Right? We've seen over the last week, we can give him our love We can love him more than anything else. So the question we should think about is, what are you willing or what are you not willing to give up for Jesus? Right? If you want to hold on to that thing, it's probably something that you might love more than him. Or give up your time. Right? Are you willing to get up early? Are you willing to give time to serve others in the church over what you would choose to do? Are you willing to do those things to give him your time or your money? Right? To invest in Jesus because investing in him is better than anything else. Or to give him your eternity by trusting in him, by loving him, by surrendering to him because he is greater. He is not a son, but he is the son of God. 
He was the only beloved son sent to die for the sins of all. And even while we were sinners, he died for us. And it made me think of just this Jesus as the beloved son. And obviously it made me think of John 3.16. So I'm just going to read 16 through 18 because most of us know John 3.16, but the rest of it kind of builds us out. And so this is what we're thinking about when we think about Jesus as the beloved son. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to get everybody that he's talking to to understand. Right? Believing in Jesus, who is right in front of them. He is the Messiah, and he's trying to get their eyes to open so they can see who he is. Right? To trust in him, to believe in him, to follow him, to give him their all, because he is greater than anything they can do on their own. He is greater than whatever they can choose to give their time, their money, their energy to on their own. So we trust in him because he is the greater son of God. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for a chance just to gather. Yes, it's, it's a little warm. But in your creation, to see what you have made, to experience it, to worship it, to see your power and your grace and your creativity and your love of how you created all of these things for us to see and to experience and to understand. So God, help us to remember, to see you as greater and even to spend time this week to think about how you are greater even than what we know about you even than what we understand, that there's more depth, there's more to understand, there's more that what we know about you can apply to our lives. God, so help us to seek you and to choose the greater thing, to serve you, to love you, to give our all to you, because giving it to you is greater than giving it to anything else, even ourselves. So help us to love you with all that we are. In your name I pray, amen.